I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark once again, Mark chapter 14. Our scripture reading is going to be verses 66 to 72. Mark chapter 14, verses 66 to 72. Be reading from the English Standard Version translation. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Father, it's our prayer this morning that we might have your Holy Spirit guiding us and teaching us to what this portion of your word would say to us. Uh, Say to us, even as you designed scripture to speak to us, to teach us, to correct us, to reprove us, to train us in righteousness so that we as your people would be fully equipped for every good work that you've called us to. Father, recognizing Scripture as our most basic foundational means of grace to us, we pray that even as we read it and understand it and listen to it, your Spirit would draw us closer to Jesus, of whom all the Scriptures testify. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, as, as, we, as we come to the story, which is about Peter's denial, denial of Jesus, I want us to appreciate that it's right in the midst of the story that we've been reading about the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, the, the people who are the leaders of the Jews, uh, denouncing Jesus and condemning Jesus. So we have these two stories right next to each other, in conjunction with each other. And one of the things we ought to recognize immediately is that What binds these two stories together is, in fact, what they share in common. What does the the denying of Jesus by his disciples, what does the denouncing of Jesus by his enemies have in common? It's the fallen human nature. That brokenness that all of us have in Adam, that nature that drives us away from fellowship with God, And even in our best intentions, when we might desire to stand with Christ, we find ourselves falling away and even denying him. Now, what's interesting to think about is that the connection between Peter and Mark, you know, Mark, the writer of the gospel. We know from church history, with no evidence to contradict it, that Mark's gospel is considered Peter's gospel. From the standpoint that 
that uh, the close association that church history gives us evidence for between Mark and Peter indicates that that this gospel represents Peter and Peter's gospel in a number of ways. In fact, in so many incidences where Peter occurs, there's more detail given by Mark than there is by Matthew or by Luke, and especially this story. The vividness of Mark's account in terms of Peter's denial is significant when you compare it to Mark or when you compare it to Luke, which would indicate at least this, that there's, there's a reason here that Peter wants his denial of Jesus to be vividly presented. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit wants Peter's denial of Jesus to be vividly presented. You know, the Apostle Paul, more than on one occasion would speak of himself as so unworthy of the grace of God because he persecuted the church. He said, I am the foremost of sinners. In its own way, the story of Peter and his denial of Jesus is the way in which Peter is saying, I too am among the chief of sinners. I have denied Christ. Where does that fit in then to the whole gospel account in terms of the story that Mark is presenting? It it points to the reality that when Jesus goes through what he goes through, he doesn't have the support of his disciples, his closest friends. Which is to say... Jesus has to bear the redemptive weight of the burden of sin entirely, entirely upon himself. There's no one that shares in the redemptive mission and work of Christ except Jesus alone. There's no one that helps Jesus to bear this awful load. There's no one except Jesus who bears the full weight of sin. His enemies are the reason he's dying. His disciples have denied him and fled. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who goes to the cross to bear the full weight of sin. The sin of his enemies and even the sin of those who deny him. We can guess, without it really being much of a guess, that the reason this story of Peter's denial is so vividly presented by Mark is that it illustrates powerfully the whole meaning and purpose of the gospel that we have contributed nothing to the work of Christ at all except our denouncing of Jesus and our denying of Jesus our sin our story and the story of Jesus going to the cross is a story that illustrates We fell away from the truth in the garden. And even if we were to think that we loved Jesus so very, very much, nevertheless, it is our sin that put him upon the cross. Salvation is all of Jesus. Salvation is all of grace.
Now, to help us see this, and, and to sense even more vividly that this is the case as we go through the story of Mark, we'll, we'll look at this in, in three movements. There's, first of all, the movement that begins at the end of the Lord's Supper as they're heading out to Mount Olives. There's, that's where Jesus first speaks to Peter and the disciples about what's going to happen. And then what takes place in the garden, uh, what takes place there when Jesus is with his disciples. And then finally, the third movement, which we look at in terms of this passage, there at the house and home of the high priest when Jesus is under trial and how Peter responds to the situation then. Three things to, to emphasize, to illustrate, to pull out the depth of the denial, Peter, of his Lord and friend and Savior. First of all, right after the supper, if we go back in chapter 14 to verses 26 to 31, this is what we read that that sets up the story of Peter's denial. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, This very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, it's important to see that that when Jesus announces to his disciples what's going to happen, that he's, he's preparing them. He's preparing them for the things that are going to take place. And that preparation really has two parts. First, he wants them to know that these coming events have been prophesied in Scripture. That's to point out as Jesus did throughout his entire ministry and life, that the whole blueprint of his ministry and his life and who he was and all he did, all that had been established and predicted in the Scriptures. So that whatever was going to take place had been foreordained to take place. So when this attack comes, when, when Jesus as the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered, and in essence, Jesus has said, understand this. It has already been written that this is to take place. Understand it's been written in the Word of God. That's to help them to understand that even their failure has been written into the Word of God. But Jesus also secondly prepares them in this way. He says, but after I have been raised up, I will go ahead so you can be with me in Galilee. In essence, to say to them, though you will fail... I'm greater than that. And we will still meet again after the resurrection. Now, notice Peter's response. He ignores the point that Jesus has made that the prediction is written in Scripture. He ignores the fact that Jesus is saying, it is foreordained that these things shall take place. Peter wants to protest that although the others might fall away, he won't deny Jesus. 
even if he must die with Christ, he's not about to deny him. He states this emphatically. He says, I am loyal, I am faithful, even if it means that I have to die with you. But we know the reality of the story. We know that Peter's confidence in himself is misplaced. Peter's confidence in himself is misplaced. Now that's why from Peter's perspective, this whole story needs to be presented and his failure presented in a very vivid way. Because at the time that Mark writes this gospel, uh, all throughout the empire, but increasingly, and most certainly in the city of Rome, the persecution against Christians is beginning to mount up. Although Peter says the right thing to Jesus in terms of being willing to die for him, although Peter knows that it is the right thing to be willing to die for Jesus, he proves that he isn't such a faithful and loyal follower of Jesus at this point. It is far too easy for any of us to overestimate our ability to stay faithful to Christ. It is far too easy for any of us to deceive ourselves into thinking, no matter what comes, I will remain faithful to Jesus. We will always be self-deceived if we have the tendency to trust ourselves. We will always find ourselves failing if we put an ounce of trust in ourselves. Peter's faith in what he says to Jesus is faith in himself. Peter has believed in Peter. I will never deny you, Jesus. I want you to understand that what that shows us is that we live in a culture that honestly hates the truth. Because everything in our culture has told young people again and again and again, have faith in yourself. Have faith in your own abilities. Trust your heart. Believe that you can do it. Believe that whatever your heart tells you to do, that is the path that you should follow. Again and again and again, our culture, in the entertainment world, in the educational system, in the military system, all told again and again and again, you got this. You can do this. Just listen to your inner voice. Trust yourself. Follow yourself. You can do this. And, and we as Christians sometimes are only halfway Christian. How often do we go through our days and our lives and we think, when the big things come up, I definitely need to talk to God. 
I really need to pray to God. But I'm not going to sweat the small stuff. I can handle the small stuff. God is there to take care of the big things. He expects me to take care of the small things. It's not the truth. Jesus didn't say, apart from me, you can't do the big things. Jesus said, John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Your Christian life is compromised consistently by you trusting in yourself. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in your Lord with your whole heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. But you and I live like this. We trust in the Lord for the big things on our hearts. For the smaller things, we lean upon our own understanding. In most of... No, on the big things, we... Turn it over to God, expecting him to direct our paths. Peter believed in Peter. You and I fail when we believe in ourselves. The greatest enemy of the Christian life is our own sense that we've got this, God. We can do this. It will compromise us. It will wreck our lives again and again and again. Now, in the second movement, we go on to the second part of the story, and now we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And and here in the Garden, uh, we begin reading, again, back in chapter 14 at verse 34. Jesus says to them, this is Peter, James, and John, that he pulls aside to be with him. He says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, these are very significant words. The disciples ought to be on... um, How many levels of alert does the military give us in terms of the security of the United States? Threat level all the way down to five. This is threat level five. Defcon worse. Okay, this is Defcon one. All right, this is this is worse. You know, the defense strategy here is you have got to understand this is a maximally significant, threatening time, because Jesus says, "My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch." So Jesus is telling Peter, James, and John, watch in prayer. The great need of the hour is to be watching in prayer. And then we read that Jesus goes off a short distance. He prays for an hour. He comes back, verse 37, and he finds them sleeping. And he says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
So the, the reason why Jesus is so concerned is that, that the disciples needed to be in prayer is directly related to their own deepest spiritual need at that moment. Because even if their spirits are willing to follow Jesus all the way to the end, even if their spirits are willing to say, as Peter did, I'm willing to die for you, the flesh is too weak. The flesh representing their their own natural natures. Their nature is not up to fulfilling what they may want in their heart of hearts to do. They are weak. They need to pray for God for help that they might not give in to the coming temptation. And then Jesus goes away a second time. He returns, verse 40. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. So apparently Jesus comes back. Again, they're sleeping. They're not staying alert in prayer. He's warned them once. He finds them in this situation. They know they're without excuse. They have nothing to answer him, and that's their sad condition. I was thinking about this. I know that they didn't have you know, Starbucks to help them out with a lot of caffeine. But I thought, wouldn't there be some adrenaline? Wouldn't there be something going, coursing through their bodies to, to cause them to be able to say, how could I possibly sleep at this moment? In normal situations, that's probably the case. But we need to understand that this time, what's happening in the life and ministry of Christ is that the powers of darkness are, in fact, upon that night so deeply. That the ordinary kinds of psychic mechanisms that our bodies might have in terms of danger are not functioning When Jesus says the flesh is weak, it is so weak that even the normal ways in which we might respond to danger with a fight or flight kind of mechanism, it's not there. The disciples are, in fact, overwhelmed with sleepiness. They can't even stay awake. Which again tells us, that what we have in terms of who we are normally, it's not up to the task. Not in the face of the powers of darkness. Not in the face of temptation. What we have is is simply not up to it. So Jesus leaves for a third session of prayer. He returns. He speaks to them again. He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Bless you. Now, consider what's the key aspect of Peter's failure. Jesus has given the disciples the proper approach to be prepared for the temptation. Pay attention to what the Word of God says, because he's spoken about the Word of God. He's also told them, this is the time that you need to pray. 
and he comes back and tells them again, you need to pray. He's encouraged them that they need to seek God for deliverance from this hour of temptation. But they fall asleep instead. So what does Peter's story show us? The neglect of the great matter of prayer was instrumental in dooming him to what's going to happen next. So in the third movement of the story, the passage we read, Peter is going into the home area, the courtyard of the high priest, having neglected paying attention to the word of God, having neglected the great means of grace in terms of prayer. And in verse 54 of chapter 14, we read, Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He's sitting with the guards and he's warming himself at the fire. So clearly, in terms of the Spirit being willing, Peter wants to be there. He wants to be there, but he also wants it to be in secrecy and in safety. We can imagine that the fear has increasing control over Peter because the clear and present danger is real and it's very great. That seems to be his state of mind when a servant girl comes up to him, approaches him, verses 67 and 68, seeing Peter warming himself, she looks at him and says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Clearly, no preparation. Walking into the the arena of danger with no preparation for what he's going to say, how he's going to respond, how he's going to act if, if, if he's confronted in any way. The reaction of Peter demonstrates that he's disturbed and frightened by being identified and connected to Jesus. So he goes out to the gateway. The rooster crows his first denial. Then we read in verses 69 and 70, the servant girl isn't going to let this go. She sees Peter again. She begins to speak to the bystanders, and she says, this man is one of them. But Peter denies it. That's his second denial. And then we go on to verse 70. A little while later, bystanders, again, they speak to Peter. And they say, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Matthew points out that it's his brogue or his accent that's given him away. But note Peter's response in verse 71. He began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter denies any knowledge of Jesus, and he does so in the strongest and most profane possible way. And that's his third denial. Think how far Peter has fallen. 
to invoke a curse upon himself that he doesn't know Jesus. You know, for three years, he has lived and traveled and ministered with Christ. Uh, At the very beginning of that ministry, in Peter's own house, Jesus came in and healed his mother-in-law from a serious fever. During stormy conditions on the Sea of Galilee, uh, Peter was invited to walk on the water with Jesus, and he did. Uh, On the road to Caesarea Philippi, it's Peter who announces about Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter says to, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you are Peter, Petros. And upon this Petra, rock, foundation, meaning the confession of Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Look at all that Peter has been privileged to do in his knowledge of Jesus. And then a few days after that, they go to the Mount Transfiguration. And he sees Jesus glorified and actually talking to Moses and Elijah. And now Peter denies that he has ever known anything about Jesus at all, calling down a curse upon himself and swearing that that is so. That's how far Peter has fallen. Peter wants his failure to be seen and understood by the readers of Mark's gospel. He doesn't want his position as an apostle to be seen in such a way that people think, I want to be like Peter. Peter doesn't want anyone to be like Peter. He wants everyone to want to find everything in Christ. Peter wants his life to show that even if he has been an apostle of Jesus Christ, he began his walk with Jesus with feet of clay. He wants the believers in Rome to know and to understand he isn't who he is because he has lived such an incredibly faithful life in Jesus. He is who he is because of what Jesus has done in him and for him and through him. Peter wants believers to know that in the hour of greatest trial and need at this time, that he failed to heed the word of God, he failed to pray. He did the foolish thing of trusting in himself. So that believers would understand that whatever might be coming, whatever they might be facing, 
the greatest misstep they can take is to trust in themselves. So the story gets wrapped up in verse 72, where immediately the rooster crows a second time. Peter remembers how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. It's only now when his failures have reached the full extent that Jesus had predicted. It's only now that Peter is deeply convicted of what he's done. And he breaks down and he weeps. So why is this story so important? How does it fit into the message of the gospel? First, it is the deepest folly of any of us as Christians to trust in our own strength. To trust in ourselves is to like trusting our own goodness, thinking that we have anything that can stand against all the kind of evil and temptations that are present in this world. The second thing that Peter's failure shows, it's foolish of us to neglect the ordinary means of grace that God has given us, which the Word of God and prayer, which are, in fact, the channel by which we have communion with Christ. The third lesson is this. Our failures, like Peter's failure, God's way of saying to us, you need Jesus. You need him all the time. And you need him for everything. We need the word of the cross. Because for us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. We need Christ. Because Christ himself is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We need Christ because he is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We, we must remember that it must never be ourselves that we proclaim to trust in ourselves, but that we are only servants for Jesus' sake. At all times, we are jars of clay in order to show that the surpassing power for all things in the Christian life belongs to God, not to us. So that if any of us should ever boast, it would be boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We come to the table this morning. Let our coming be in recognition that this table reminds us we need Jesus again and again. Let's pray. Father, enable us to, to see in Peter evidence of what we find in ourselves to heed this story that tells us that all of salvation is all in Christ. And Christ is all that we need. Christ is everything that we need. But Christ is most certainly what we need. Speak to us of these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
and 253. So we come to the Lord's table this morning. It's our custom when we do this to rehearse the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 29. I want us to note right at the beginning that the Apostle Paul says here that these words he received from the Lord Jesus. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given him thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, do you hear what the apostle is saying? The table is no ordinary table. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a table specifically prepared, inaugurated, for those who have, by faith in Jesus, come into all the benefits and blessings of the new covenant. And in terms of the administration of the supper and all that it means in terms of the unity of the people of God and their communion with Christ. The, the important thing that, that Paul here writes is that we need to be able to discern in, in the bread and in the fruit of the vine the very body and blood of Christ. Which is to say that we come by faith and by the apprehension of faith recognize that what is represented here is symbolic, signifying what God has done in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that in partaking of this by faith, we find sealed to us again the gospel message that salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus and not in ourselves. And that's why Paul's responsible encouragement to the church is, you must know who Jesus is. You must know what Jesus has done. You must understand the personal grace that's in Christ and the purchased grace in Christ in order to understand what this table is all about. But when you have trusted in that one, truly, then you will have the ability to understand that these symbols represent the great and deep truths of the gospel. That we have not saved ourselves. We have not contributed to our salvation. That we have been bought by the blood of Christ, purchased through his death, that it's all of grace by which we are saved. So this table is the table of the Lord Jesus. It represents who he is and what he has done. And this table is for all those who in sincerity of heart and faith understand. I see the gospel preached and proclaimed here. And I have trusted and I believe 
in that gospel. Let's pray now. Let's ask the Lord to set apart what's ordinary unto the sacred purpose for which he first ordained this table. So we pray, Almighty God, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit's presence here would sanctify all that we do, set aparting the bread, set aparting the fruit of the vine, that here in these ordinary elements we have pictured and presented to us and proclaimed to us the very death of Jesus Christ and all the benefits of the new covenant until Jesus comes again. Enable us then to partake in true faith. Enable us then to see the grace, to experience the grace of the gospel again, even as we have this communion with Jesus through his table. In his name we pray. Amen.